For those of you who don't know, every year uh, for the month of July, our session very graciously, um, and you as a congregation very graciously, allows me to just shut things down and disconnect uh, from ministry altogether. Uh, That month of unplugging is very important, and you need to know that. It's very important to me to combat the exhaustion of pastoral ministry and, to be honest with you, to prevent what is a very high rate of pastoral burnout. And I want you to know um, how grateful I am to you as a congregation and and certainly to you elders who are here um, for affording me that opportunity. I I feel like every year I limp into the month of July um, wondering whether this calling is sustainable. And every time I find myself returning in August more excited uh, than ever uh, to give my life away here for the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass. And and so that, that, that's where I am this morning. I want to thank you uh, for your generosity in doing that. That's not to say that I find myself particularly rested uh, this morning. Everybody always asks when I come back in July, uh, the, the number one question I get from people is, are you rested? Are you rejuvenated? And the answer is, have you seen my family? Um, I just spent four weeks with them. No. No, I am not. I'm exhausted. Um, I have given up on rest for about 15 years. So, uh, but it's a different type of exhaustion. It's a, it's a glorious exhaustion. It's, it's uh, uh, family, joy, fun, uh, jet lag, all of those things. It's, it's different than pastoral exhaustion. And so for that, I'm very thankful. Pastorally, I'm invigorated. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot about that in the coming weeks, again, if you come to our combined Sunday school class. Uh, but what happens when I'm allowed time away, um, it, it, it affords me the opportunity to think and to dream, which is something that I love to do. Um, the visionary in me is bursting with so many thoughts and ideas, and I can't wait to share them all with you. Um, and I find that particularly true this year, and, and here's why. I did, a, did, did my July a little differently this year. Um, I was given the amazing opportunity and invitation by the Free Church of Scotland, which is essentially the PCA denomination of the United Kingdom, to essentially do a, a, a preaching, teaching tour throughout the entire uh, United Kingdom. And I said, I can do that as long as I can bring my family in. And they said, yeah, we'd love for that. So um, we did the, the European vacation, staying in different pastors' homes and, and, and things like that. And it was a wonderful time. But more than ever, it really got my juices flowing um, about ideas because um, I, I, there's something, and some of you know who have been to Western Europe and the United Kingdom, there's something very different about traveling over there because in some ways you see what is coming our way. Now that's a simplistic view of things. One of the, in fact, one of my takeaways is there, that the whole where it is in Europe is where it's going to be in America. Um, actually, I don't think is necessarily true. It's not as one-to-one as that. But by and large, there is a lot of truth to that. And, and I do have many thoughts and applications to share from that experience of being over there. But there was one central application that I came away um, burdened with in my heart 
and therefore wanting to share with you this morning. Um, one word, boldness. What, what, what is it going to require for us to navigate what brothers and sisters in Western Europe and the United Kingdom, Scotland, England, and so forth, are navigating now? Courage. Boldness. And here's why. When the culture around us is predominantly a culture formed by a Judeo-Christian worldview, when Christian thought and ethics are not just accepted but celebrated, when Christians are able not just to exist but influence culture, then it is easy for us to lose that central call of the Christian faith, which is the call to courage. And such has been the case in the West over the past couple centuries. Christians didn't need to cultivate boldness because, quite frankly, it wasn't needed. But what I discovered in the United Kingdom and what I believe we are beginning to discover more and more in the United States is that we are going to have to rediscover the call to Christian boldness. Simply put, if you're a follower of Jesus, and many of you here are, you better be ready to be courageous with your faith because it soon will be required of you if it is not already. It is going to require what I would even call a unique boldness that in many ways is different and more difficult than traditional Christian courage. And here's what I mean by that. It's going to require a boldness to live out the Christian faith, not in a non-Christian context, but in a post-Christian context, which is very different. As Leslie Newbegin and C.S. Lewis were prophets to tell us this. In some ways, it's more scary to live out the Christian faith in a post-Christian context than in a non-Christian context which is where much of Western Europe is. There is something incredibly unnerving, I would even label it eerie, about a post-Christian society. Those who have known the gospel, built an entire society around the gospel. Christianity is the foundation of its ethics, its education, its science, its business, its art, its architecture. Every building you see was the product of the Christian world view. An entire society and culture formed around the Christian worldview and conviction and then total and complete rejection. A society that has known Christ and now is actively seeking to rid themselves of Christ is an eerie society. These past few weeks, I, I felt like I was touring the ancient ruins of Christianity. It's very different than cross-cultural mission work where you're going to cultures and societies uh, like where I went to West Africa or even Mexico in some senses where uh, the influence wasn't there and it's just very different. That's a different type of feel than a world that has known the influence of Christianity, has rejected the influence of Christianity, is ashamed of their history and is trying to purge themselves of their history. I went to the Louvre in Paris and what you have are the collection of Christian art 
right next to, right next door to the collection of ancient Egypt artifacts. And the two are viewed in the same way. Fascinating parts of history, worth pondering, worth studying, but not relevant in any way to modern society. And so everywhere I went in the UK, it felt like a stroll in some senses through the graveyard of Christianity. And make no mistake, I do believe, again, I don't think it's as simple as what happens in Europe happens in the United States eventually. I think there's some differences that are important, and I intend to write something on that in the coming weeks. But by and large, I think it is true, it is coming here. I talked to pastor after pastor after pastor who told me we never thought this was possible. In one generation, we went from vibrant big churches to nothing. And he said it to me as a warning. Revival aside, what I experienced these past couple of weeks may very well be the normative experience of my grandchildren. And so what I'm saying in this long introduction and observation is we need to be ready. And what that means is that we need to relearn what Christians of the past have always known. Courage. Boldness. A boldness of faith that previous generations perhaps took for granted will soon be demanded of every follower of Jesus. And so I want to go there this morning with you. To do that, I want to turn to Acts. I thought of this passage for a reason, a little context. For the first time, the apostles have been arrested for preaching the gospel. And at first, they are only given an admonishment. So this is before big-time persecution has come up. The first thing happens is they're arrested, and they say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. That's what it says. As it charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's what's coming to the West. That's what's already there, and that's what's coming here. You can hold your personal beliefs about Jesus, but you cannot speak or teach about them. The moment private faith becomes public faith, culture will have a problem with you. So what do the apostles do? That's what I was interested in. What do they do at the beginning of this thing, this persecution thing, when they're being arrested and saying, stop talking about Jesus? What do they do? Well, what's interesting is that's not an option for them. They get together and pray. But their prayer is not, Lord, protect us. Their prayer is not, Lord, don't let them arrest us. Don't let them kill us. Don't. They don't pray to change the circumstances. They pray for what? They pray for boldness. To do the very thing that they were just told they can't do. They gather together with early believers for prayer. And that's a sermon in itself. Rediscovering prayer is a means of survival. But what I want to do this morning is evaluate their prayer. Because what I think we will see is hidden within their prayer is a, is a biblical boldness, a conviction of what courage looks like. And it comes to us in two ways. Two things I see hidden in their prayer that I believe are the pathway to biblical courage. I'm not talking about John Wayne, um, I'm tough, self-sufficient, take on the world, militant, angry. That's, that's not courage. I'm talking about humble, confident courage in the face of opposition. Two things in their prayer that lead to it. I see a power that leads to boldness 
and a providence that leads to boldness. So let's look at power and providence. Power that leads to boldness. Look at how they begin their prayer in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Now that covers everything. Sovereign Lord, who made everything. Now, that's not just an eloquent Christianese way to begin a prayer. Oh, sovereign Lord of all things. It is a profound statement in the face of opposition. It is a profound declaration of power. Sovereign Lord, and when they say sovereign, they mean sovereign. He is the creator and sustainer of all heaven and earth. Sovereignty not only means that he owns heaven and earth, it means that he is in charge, that he is running heaven and earth. And they invoke the truth of God's sovereignty as a reminder of this. Things are not as they seem. The circumstances that they are facing, they believe, are an illusion. Though it appears that Roman authorities are in charge, though it appears that they are sovereign, or for our context, though it appears that Western secularism is in charge, that Western secularism is sovereign, they are not in fact sovereign. God is sovereign. Things are not as they appear, is what they're saying. And they address this sovereign Lord as one who is on their side. They are reminding themselves that the lesser powers are the ones against them and the ultimate power is the one for them. The true sovereign is on their side. And we have to remember the same. The sovereignty of God is not a theological idea that's fun to debate. It is a doctrinal rock upon which to stand. Every Christian throughout the century has been tempted by circumstances to believe that something else is sovereign. Every Christian is always tempted by their circumstances to believe that something besides their God is sovereign. For the early church, it was Nero. Or perhaps the rise of Islam. Or communism, or modernism, or postmodernism, or hedonism, or secularism, or atheism, or whatever ism is to come, if we walk by the sight of our circumstances, we will believe that the latest ism is sovereign. But by faith, we know that God is sovereign and transcends the rise and fall of every ism. The sovereignty of God continues to stand upon the graves of fallen world views and worldly powers. And the point of their prayer is that the true sovereign is on our side. These lesser sovereigns that seem to be in control may be against us, but the true sovereign who is in control is with us and he's on your side too. The one who owns the universe owns you. The one who commands all of creation from the furthest galaxies to the tiniest atom commands as well your very destiny, life, day, moment. Does that not embolden you? The one who actually is in control is with you. 
is for you. This is the power behind biblical boldness. Not in you. Not in your strength. You're actually quite weak like I am. Not in your talents. Not in your gifts. Not in your intellectual ability to debate the issues of the day and disprove the isms of the day. Not in any strength of our own. That is not the power of boldness. The power of boldness is the sovereignty of the true power. That things are not as they seem. They're not in control. God is in control. But it goes further than that. For a good question that is maybe on your mind or perhaps should be on your mind is this. That sounds good in theory, but it doesn't look like that in reality. I mean, it's nice to get together in church and hear a sermon about God's actually in control, not the powers of this world. But I don't know about you. Let's just go ahead and give ourselves the freedom to play the cynic. Sure doesn't look like that. When I go out there, it doesn't look like that. It sure doesn't look like God is the one who's actually sovereign, who's actually in control. Well, let's answer that fear with the next observation. Not only is there a power that leads to boldness, but a power coupled with a providence that leads to boldness. Providence is the theological word that is used to describe the actual sovereign control of God, okay? So sovereignty says that he owns all things. Providence is the way in which that ownership is manifested. He is sovereign, which means everything is his. But he controls everything that is his by his providence. Now, it wasn't always the case. Certainly not in Orthodox theology or the theology of the Reformation or even early American Christian churches. But it is the case today that the majority of our churches... And the majority of Christians deny God's providential control over all things, particularly bad things. I totally understand that that is the current climate of our day. That most people do not believe in the absolute sovereign providential control of everything, especially bad things. Well, I understand that, but I want you to know that the truth that he is providentially in control over all things, though you may fear that truth and not not understand the implication of that truth, is actually the pathway to freedom and boldness. I'm going to read the next part of our text here. And I'm going to ask you with intellectual honesty, is there another way around the truth that God is in complete control even over bad things that happen, even over the very worst thing that has ever happened. Is there any doubt that God is in absolute sovereign control? Listen to the implications of these verse. Continue on with their prayer. Sovereign Lord, verse 24, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. That's his sovereignty. Now providence. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, then he quotes Psalm 2, our, our Old Testament reading. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
Let me explain that text and show you how it brings boldness. He quotes Psalm 2, our Old Testament reading. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm predicting the coming of Jesus. The psalm asks the question, why do the Gentiles rage, the people, meaning the people of Israel, plot in vain, the kings of the earth, the rulers gather together, all of them are gathered together against the Lord's anointed, that's Jesus. Then our passage says that that prediction was ultimately fulfilled in the death of Christ. The apostle said that actually happened. Truly, that actually happened. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against Jesus. Herod, he's the ruler. Pontius Pilate, he's the kings of the earth. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all gathered together to kill Jesus. Just as you said they would. In other words, you said it would happen and it has happened. You are in control. You said in Psalm 2 that the world is going to gather together to kill Jesus and the world has gathered together to kill Jesus. You were right. You're in control. But wait, does that necessarily mean he's in control? Or could it just mean that he's all-knowing and he knew what was going to happen, how it was going to happen? But that doesn't necessarily mean he wanted it to happen or that he orchestrated how it happened. Well, it gets clearer, doesn't it? Psalm 2 asks the question and the apostles answer it. Psalm 2 asks the question, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do people plot? Why are the rulers and kings gathered against Jesus? Here's the answer for Max chapter 4. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. No qualifications. Clear as day. This is the will of God to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. Every detail of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the perfect providence of God. When they cried, crucify him, crucify him, it was the will of God. When Pilate gave way to their demands and sentenced him to death, that was the precise will of God. When they mocked him and dressed him up with the crown of thorns and beat him and spit in his face, it was the will of God. When the soldier's hammer came down on the nail that drove through his wrist, it was the will of God. When they drove the spear through his side, that was the will of God. When he bowed his head and breathed his last and suffered the judgment I deserve, it was the perfect providential will of God. Do you know what that means? Every detail, every moment of the greatest atrocity ever committed was directed, planned, and predestined by the will and providence of Almighty God. Or, as Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, what makes us think we are better than Jesus? What makes us think that we are more valuable than the Son of God? As though when affliction, persecution, harm, bitter providence comes my way, it must be the exemption to God's sovereignty and providence because there's no way my God would want that to happen to me. It is a false doctrine. He is sovereign on the sunny days and he is sovereign on the rainy days. Now, I'm not just trying to defend classic Reformed theology here. The reason I am being so precise is because there's beauty here. There's freedom here. 
And so many miss it because they are so afraid of this doctrine. This doctrine will lead to boldness. How? here's, Here's how. We have stated in the clearest terms God's providence in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask, why? Why did he perfectly plan the greatest atrocity that ever happened? He's not malicious. He doesn't harm just for the fun of it. It's not as though he does not love the eternal Son of God. Why? Well, I ask you, what was accomplished by the perfect will of God to crush the Son? Endless eternal good. We will spend all eternity reveling and worshiping in the benefits of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Now make the connection. The disciples pray, Sovereign Lord, who planned the execution of Jesus in order to accomplish endless good, now will you look upon the threats that we are facing and not deliver us, not protect us, not tell them to stop, Lord. No, no, no. Will you look upon their threats and do the same thing for us that you did for Jesus? Give us the boldness to endure your will. Give us boldness to endure. Do you get it? May we know, may we hold fast, may we be bold, knowing that just like your providence over Jesus, whatever threats we face, whatever persecution is on our way, whatever affliction we must endure, you are sovereignly at work in that, just like the cross, to bring about what is good. If God can plan and orchestrate the cross to bring about endless good, then yes, God can plan and orchestrate my persecution to bring about good. Now, this truth is illustrated in the clearest possible way three chapters later in Acts. It's amazing. They gather together and they say, look upon their threats and grant us boldness, God. And God answers their prayer. In Acts 7, Stephen Bold in the name of Jesus. The crowds pick up stones and they stone him to death. Where is God? How could he let this happen? How could this possibly be his sovereign providential will? Well, there in the crowd witnessing this bold saint, Stephen, is a man named Saul. Saul soon became known as Paul as in the great Apostle Paul, as in the writer of half the New Testament, including the book written to the Romans, including chapter 8, verse 28, where he declares what I now say to you. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God works all things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So when you get to glory, you ask Stephen if he would gladly endure stoning if it would be a seed that sprouted the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. God works all things, including suffering, including affliction for good. You see, the key there is defining good, isn't it? If you define that well, then you cannot lose. Read Charles Spurgeon's surgeon on Charles. 
Spurgeon's sermon on Romans 128. That's, that's what he says. That's the crux of the matter here. Spurgeon says, you got to define good. God works all things, good and bad. He works all things for good. you got to define good for that promise to make sense. Is it your finances? Is it your health? Is it your protection? Is it your comfort? Is it the well-being of your children? Is it the well-being of your emotional state? If it is good according to the world, then this verse and God's providence do not make sense. But if it is good according to God, as in your salvation, your sanctification, uh, your love for Him, your worship toward Him, your love for others, the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom, if that becomes your good, then providence makes perfect sense. And that is assurance. Everything is designed and controlled by a sovereign God to be for good. If your definition of good is his definition of good, then you literally cannot lose. And now you are emboldened. Come back to boldness now. It's all the theology for this one application, boldness. Consider the power of God. Consider the providence of God. And then consider what have you to fear? If it is true that he is sovereign, if it is true that his providence is perfect, what have you to fear? Brothers and sisters, I return from the United Kingdom with bad news and good news. Here's the bad news. It does seem to me, as a guy who just can't help but wherever he goes to think and culturally evaluate everything, it's it's miserable, actually. But as, it does seem to me I have been giving, given a tour of our future, and it's not pretty. Revival aside, I do believe the day is coming when to speak the truths that we hold dear will have us marginalized at best and persecuted at worst. There is no tolerance for you in the tolerance of Western society. There is no room for you, Christian. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Things are not as they seem. For none of these developments can touch the power and providence of our sovereign God. If God could use the greatest evil and defeat, the crucifixion of the Son of God, for the greatest good and triumph, then there is nothing His sovereignty cannot handle. And so in the end, it is the truth of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of sovereignty, which was proclaimed so faithfully in the United Kingdom for so many years, which in so many ways we learned this doctrine from the theologians over there. It is that doctrine which precisely is what is needed in the face of such persecution. What does it do to your heart to know that God is sovereign and powerful and that his providence is perfect? What does that do to your weak hearts? What does that do to your timidity? What does that do to your reservation to speak up? What does that do to your fear of being awkward? What does that do to your anxiety about the future? The sovereignty of God is the antidote that we so desperately need. The truth of his power and the truth of his providence 
crucifies our cowardice and resurrects our boldness. Let me pray that he would do that. Lord, may your sovereignty not just be a doctrine that we debate, but a rock upon which we stand. May it embolden your people that we literally cannot fail. We cannot lose. Things are not as they seem. You are sovereign. The powers of this world are not. You are providentially working all things for good, even the things we fear. We cannot lose. I pray that you would embolden us as your people. I pray that this church, Lord, would be known as the most courageous church in this city. Courageous in its gospel witness, courageous in its evangelism, courageous in its stand for justice and against injustice, courageous in its love for others, courageous in truth. Lord, we don't have that courage. We need it from you. And we find it here in the God who is sovereign in your power and in your providence. Fill us with that truth now as we partake of your sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.